Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Please join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back. We have so very much to talk about today. This may be a long one, or I may end up breaking it up into two pieces in editing. We'll have to see just how long it ends up being. So let's get started right away. This is topic three, part two, Schubert's Missouri of series six, Historic Theaters. If this is your first time listening, I would actually recommend that you pause here, go back and listen to part one of this topic, which is the Century Theater. And then if you enjoy both of these episodes, I think you'll also enjoy topic one and two of this series, which are the Empress Theaters, part one and two, and the Opera Houses, part one and two. As well as I think you'll like my episode on jazz from series one, and series two, Paris of the Plains, which is all about prohibition, the Pendergast era, and Madame Annie Chambers. And as a little heads up, in this current episode, I'm going to spend a lot of time discussing people and events that are outside of Kansas City, but it's because it's hella dramatic and interesting, and it provides a lot of context for what's going on inside Kansas City. Okay, so here's a quick recap for you, since it's been a while since you listened to part one. Um, The Folly, when it was first built was known as the Standard. It was built in 1900 by Lewis Curtis. It was owned by Edward Butler from St. Louis, and he started the Empire Vaudeville Circuit. The name was changed to the Century Theater in 1902, although it was still owned by Butler in the Empire Circuit, and it was partially destroyed in 1920. So picking up right where we left off, it's 1920, the Roaring 20s, the Golden 20s, And thankfully for us, and I guess also Kansas Cityans at that time, the theater was not completely destroyed, unlike previously discussed theaters. The Schubert brothers bought it, and they renovated it and reopened it under the name Schubert's Missouri. And that was in 1923. So they were basically emperors. I mean, PBS calls them, quote, Theatrical managers and producers of the largest theater empire in the 20th century, end quote. So here's where we need to leave Kansas City for a time. I know we just got started super early, but trust me on this one. So Lee, Samuel, and Jacob were born in Lithuania. Not going to try and pronounce the name of the city. Although I do want to note that at the time, Lithuania was actually controlled by the Russian Empire. And their parents were David Hirsch Schubert, born 1843, died 1913, and Gidel Helvik Schubert, Schubert, sorry. Um, Lee was born in 1871, Samuel in 1874, and Jacob in 1876. They actually had several other siblings as well. Um, I hope I'm saying this right. Yankel, Y-A-N-K-I-E-L. Born 1862, died unknown. Kana, K H A N A, 1870, 
again unknown. Fanny Schubert, 1872 to 1928. Sarah Schubert, 1872 to 1934. And Dora Schubert Wolf, 1880 to 1951. Um, just a quick note, Fanny and Sarah also married, but given that I butchered a few other names in there, I'm not going to say their last names. So the entire family immigrated to the U.S. in 1882. So Lee was 11, Samuel was 8, and Jacob was 6 when they came to America. Little world history for you. So again, just trying to provide context here. 70,000 Jews from Eastern European countries immigrated to America in the 1870s because of anti-Semitic laws in their home countries. And this is probably why the Schubert family moved to America at that time. Anti-Semitism is real, y'all. And it still exists, and it's not cool. Only dickheads are anti-Semites. Sorry for the language, but I'm not sorry for the sentiment. In the 1880s, so just in another 10 years, there were as many as 200,000 immigrants um, from Eastern European countries that were Jews. So... The majority of Eastern European Jews settled in the Lower East Side of New York City, along with several other national and ethnic groups. Um, most of my sources said the family just settled in New York, so I was like, okay, they're probably settled in Lower East Side. But I did have one say that they actually lived in Syracuse, which is north of New York City. So sometime in the 1890s, the brothers purchased several theaters in upstate New York. In 1900, they bought Harold Square Theater, and Lee and Sam moved to Manhattan while Jacob remained upstate. Sadly, Sam died in 1905 in a train wreck. According to one of my sources, their mother gave the life insurance to Jacob and Lee, which was about $200,000, with the stipulation that they have to remain in business together. So... I feel like this is a bad sign. You only say something to like that to people who don't want to be in business together. Again, one more time, stepping back, want to talk about theater ownership, provide a greater context. So in the previous episode, I spoke a bit about competing vaudeville circuits, the Empire, which was formed in October 1897, and the Columbia or Eastern Circuit, which was found circa 1900. This is related to that. I want you to keep that discussion in mind for this next bit, which I'm going to uh, introduce you to the founders of the uh, Theatrical Trust. So, Mark Claw was born May 29th, 1858 in Paducah, Kentucky. He was a lawyer and an advanced man for traveling theater companies, meaning, if totally made up example here, the Ringling Brothers were gonna come to Kansas City Claw would arrive first, and he would make all the arrangements. Where they're going to pitch the circuit tent, where the animals can be kept and cared for, where everyone's going to sleep, etc., etc. He died June 15, 1936, in West Sussex, England. Then we have Erlanger. He's the son of Leopold Erlanger and uh, Regina Rachel Erlanger, born May 4th. 1859 or 1860 in Buffalo, New York. He also worked as an advanced man, but for road companies, not theaters. Uh, but he eventually became a theater manager. 
He died March 7th, 1930 in New York, New York. Fun fact that has nothing to do with our story, but I had to throw this in there. Erlanger actually worked on the 1925 Ben-Hur movie. So it's not the Charles Heston Ben-Hur. It was again remade sometime in the last 10 years, if I'm remembering correctly, something like that. But if you've never seen it, watch the Charles Heston version because all others are trash. No offense to Erlanger, but Charles Heston, come on. It's a good movie. Um, and Claw and Erlanger formed the Claw and Erlanger Production Company in 1913. Okay, so back to the members of the trust. There's Froman. Super easy to find biological information on this guy. I think more than any of the others. He's also Jewish. He was born June 17, 1860 in Sandusky, Ohio. His elder brothers, Daniel and Gustav, actually got into the theater industry first, and apparently that sparked his interest. In 1883, he became a manager for the Wallach Theater Company while they toured. And sometime later, he opened his own theater booking company. He also later in life became a producer. So, um, here is another movie suggestion for y'all. Watch The Producers. It's a musical slash play... Um, but there are a couple of movie versions, and there's one with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick from 2005 that's just, oh my god, so hilarious. Um, there's also a 1967 version starring Mel Gibson that, um, that is incorrect, not Mel Gibson. Um, why did I write Mel Gibson in my notes? It's the guy from... Young Frankenstein, and I'm, I'm just totally blanking on his last name right now, but he is hilarious, so that movie's probably pretty good. Um, but that would give you an idea of what a producer does. Anyways, that was way off topic, sorry. Um, Froman founded the Empire Theater Stock Company in 1892, and this was super cool. He actually produced the original Peter Pan by James Barry. In London in 1904. Wow. If I was going to go back and watch anything he produced, that would be it. Charles, oh, I, I never said his first name, I'm sorry. His, his name is Charles Froman. <laughs> Died aboard the Lusitana on May 7th, 1915. Um, we have Heyman. So, born in Wheeling, West Virginia in 1847. His parents are Alexander Heyman and Caroline Lehman Heyman. His theater career began in 1882 when he became the manager of the Bush Theater in San Francisco, California. Quote, he was also instrumental in carrying out Louis Aldrich's dream of building a home for retired actors, the Actors Fund home on Staten Island. He served as president of the Actors Fund and was a member of the Players Club. Heyman died in 1917 in New York City, end quote. All right, two more here. So we have a Mr. Nixon, not the one you're thinking of. His birth name was actually Samuel Frederick uh, Nerdlinger. May or may not have said that correctly. It's N-I-R-D-L-I-N-G-E-R. -E but he used Nixon for business purposes. His parents were Frederick and Hannah. He was born on October 13th, 1848 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 
and died November 13th, 1918 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And last but not least, we have a Mr. Zimmerman. Again, not the composer Zimmerman. Born 1843, died 1925. His business interests were primarily based in Philadelphia, and he partnered with Nixon. Okay, so here's where it really, really gets good. Ready for this? Quote, in 1886, he, he being Heyman, partnered with Charles Froman to start a booking agency providing Western U.S. theaters with entertainment and venues provided by Froman Entertainment Companies, end quote. So, like, here's how it works out. Like, Claw and Erlanger have their company together, right? And Froman and Heyman are working together. And then Nixon and Zimmerman are working together. And everybody knows everybody. And they all just, like, combine cart partnerships into one giant business partnership. And this becomes known as the Theatrical Trust. At least that's what they call themselves. Um, everybody else knows them as the theatrical syndicate, or just the syndicate. Quote, They attempted, and were successful for nearly 15 years, to decide what got produced and where it played, because among them they owned, leased, or controlled nearly 75% of the legitimate theaters and had deep pockets to finance productions. End quote. Alright, so here's how this works. For example, I am a part of the syndicate. I own the Golden Theater. It's a franchise in Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, and Colorado. So, say Miss Evangeline wants to bring her troupe to perform at my theater in Kansas City. Great. But, as a part of the contract, Miss Evangeline can only perform at one of my theaters or another theater owned by one of my business partners. So, there's no performing at the Silver Theater because it's not a part of the syndicate. Likewise, say Joe Black who is not a member of the syndicate, the manager of the Bronze Theater, signs Mr. Dupree's vaudeville show. Mr. Dupree's vaudeville show is owned by one of my partners. Again, great. But part of the contract is now Mr. Black can only sign other troops, shows, performers, etc. who work for members of the syndicate. So do you see how they're controlling it? They, they hook you in with that first sign, and then you can only sign with the syndicate going forward. It makes it very, very insular. Quote, By the 1900s, they managed over 600 first-class theaters coast-to-coast. -coast. The power of the syndicate was so restrictive that it eventually brought about the unionization of actors in the legitimate theater. End quote. Alright, enter Schubert Brothers stage left. They were like, you know what, this is your dance space, this is my dance space, we're just gonna stick with our own theaters and shows and, like, not do business with y'all, like, at all. And the Schubert brothers also grew in power and money and influence. Quote, Schubert productions appeared primarily at Schubert theaters, but not exclusively, nor did the Schuberts demand that productions by others could only play at Schubert theaters if Schubert was their exclusive venue. The Schuberts found a cache of stars who had been treated shabbily by the syndicate, happy to lend their skills to a less heavy-handed organization. One of those was the popular Sarah Bernhardt, who became a strong endorser of Schubert Productions." End quote. 
Sarah Bernhardt is often cited as one of the many famous performers who performed at Schubert's Missouri, um, also the standard uh, Century and Folly, all the same theater here in KC that we're talking about. Other famous performers included Maude Adams, Richard Mansfield, Al Jelson, Fanny Bryce, Eddie Foy, the Marx Brothers, as well as boxing legends Jack Dempsey, John Johnson, and Harry the Great. So, you know what? That's what they're doing. They're like, they're just doing their own thing. They're trying to avoid the syndicate. They don't want to be a part of that until, dun-dun-dun, some syndicate idiot decides to insult Sam's memory. And then they're like, you know what? It is on like Donkey Kong. They are going to take on the syndicate. So by 1909, the syndicate is pretty much out the door. And in 1910, honestly, at this point, we basically have a new syndicate, the Schubert Syndicate. Um... Or, as it was more officially known, the Independent National Theater Owners Association. Side note. I know, trying to stay away from that too much, but side note, super interesting. Apparently, Erlanger and Lee Schubert were actually not opposed to working together on occasion. In 1907, they attempted to break into the vaudeville circuits and founded the Schubert Refined Vaudeville. It was fairly successful and created some serious competition for the United Booking Office until Mr. Albee finally bought them out, um, which in the end may have been their goal because they made a ton of money for the endeavor and I doubt they were disappointed to leave vaudeville as a result. So, as you can see, we have multiple layers of competition going on here. We have the VMA and the UBO um, which are dominating the vaudeville circuit. We have Empire and Columbia, which are battling it out over burlesque. And now we have Schubert Brothers and the Syndicate, which are legitimate theater. So even though the Syndicate is losing power to the Schuberts, particularly after Froman died in 1915, they still have enough power to be in competition with the Schubert Brothers. That is, until the actor strike of 1919. This is the first strike by actors in America. Theater owners and producers were pissed, obviously, especially the Schubert's actually, and they took out multiple lawsuits against the actors in retaliation. But in the end, producers and theater owners cave, they sign a deal on September 3rd, and the month-long strike ends. Despite this minor setback, the Schubert theatrical empire continues to expand. Quote, by the mid-1920s, the Schubert's owned, operated, managed, or booked over 1,000 houses across the United States, end quote. Another source reported that they even owned theaters in London. However, they could only continue like this for so long because in the 1930s, we had the Great Depression, and then in the 1940s, we had World War II. This slows them down very much, obviously. Quote, on February 20th, 1950, the U.S. Department of Justice filed an antitrust complaint against the Schubert brothers and their partner, Marcus Hyman, who ran the United Booking Office, the only theatrical booking office in America at the time. End quote. This lawsuit lasted for years, years and years and years, and it even made its way to the Supreme Court in 1955, where they finally lost and the company was broken under antitrust laws much like their predecessor, the Syndicate, had been broken. 
Antitrust laws to give a very brief summary, quote, prescribe unlawful mergers and business practices in general terms, leaving courts to decide which ones are illegal based on the facts of the, each case, end quote. So Congress passed the first antitrust law, the Sherman Act, in 1890, and then two more in 1914, all with the goal of keeping various businesses of commerce open and competitive in order to protect both the consumer and the employee. Also, let's be honest here, more businesses means there's more taxes they can collect. Uh, modern examples are actually when Facebook went to court uh, last year, was that two years ago? That was under, you know, antitrust, hey, we think you have a monopoly. Yeah, spoilers, Facebook is a monopoly. Um, or more recently, several members of Congress have been saying they want to investigate Live Nation because after their merger with Ticketmaster a few years ago, they are quite literally the only place that you can buy concert tickets in America. And just like the syndicate and the Schubert brothers before them, they own or uh, lease several theaters around the country where performers would hold the concert. So they can set the ticket prices. Um, actually, a few weeks ago, I listened to an NPR report that said something like, in the early 90s, an average ticket price was $30, and it is now 300 times that much. Um, totally believe it, because I don't think I have ever spent less than $200 on a concert ticket, save one time that I managed to get a really, really great deal and bought tickets for like $10 each. I don't know how that happened though. Anyways, let's get back to the Schubert brothers. Uh, Lee Schubert died Christmas Day, 1953, and Jacob died December 16th, 1963. The Schubert organization did survive and actually even thrive after the deaths of its progenitors and it was incorporated in 1973. Today, they own 17 Broadway theaters, six off-Broadway theaters, and a theater in Philadelphia. Quote, The Schubert Foundation, Inc. was established in 1945 by Lee and J.J. Schubert. It is dedicated to sustaining and advancing the live performing arts in the United States, with a particular emphasis on theater and secondary focus on dance. End quote. Also, quote, in 1976, the Schubert Archive began to organize the papers and business records of the Schubert brothers into a comprehensive archive under the direction of Brooks McNamara, Professor Emeritus, New York University, and former archivist Bridget Coopers, K-U-E-P-P-E-R-S. More than six million documents related to the Schubert's theatrical activities were acquired and integrated into the archive. The Schubert Archive collection more than a century's worth of costume and set designs, scripts, music, publicity materials, photographs, correspondence, business records, and architectural plans was made available to all researchers in the fall of 1986. In 2002, the archive celebrated the centennial of the Schubert organization with the publication of The Schubert's Present 100 Years of American Theater and a special issue of The Passing Show, its free annual newsletter. In 2002, the Archive launched a database project that will eventually make some of its finding aids and selected collections accessible to researchers on the web." End quote. 
So after all of this time, um, I think I've been talking for about 20 minutes now. Let's finally go back to Kansas City, shall we? So the Schubert brothers bought the century after it was partially destroyed by a fire in 1920. And just want to point out real quick, they actually had already built the Sam S. Schubert Theater in 1906 at 10th and Baltimore. So this is now their second theater in Kansas City. The Century is at 12th and Central. It's, these are like four blocks away from one another. They hired Herbert Krapp, that's K-R-A-P-P, to, quote, renovate the balconies, reinforcing the wood structure with concrete, end quote. Because in the 1920s and 30s, concrete was highly popular and, like, everything's made out of concrete. Renovations totaled $25,000, and thus Schubert's Missouri is born. So, Herbert, no information found on parents, was born February 12, 1886 in Manhattan, New York, and was a renowned architect specializing in theaters. He apprenticed to the Hertz and Talent, uh, it's T-A-L-L-A-N-T, firm sometime in the early 1900s, left permanently in 1915. He worked with the Schubert brothers periodically between 1912 and 1916, before, after leaving the other firm, becoming their primary architect. Findergrave.com listed 40 buildings, primarily theaters, but also hotels and other buildings that he designed the interior and or exterior of between 1921 and 1931. Another source said, quote, of the 40 Broadway theaters now standing, Krapp designed 13 and redesigned two, end quote. Quote, Krapp remained with the Schuberts until 1963, supervising the maintenance and renovations of the existing venues. He also experimented with inventing. A great success was the patenting of cam and groove quick connect hose couplings used by government armed forces, the petroleum equipment, petrochemical and pharmaceutical industry. Evertight Coupling Co. came from the idea of the garden hose fitting and was run by his son John and family until the 1990s. He died in Florida in 1973, end quote. That's all about crap. So Schubert's Missouri is still very popular in the 1920s. They continued to book a wide range of entertainment, which now included classic dramas and Shakespearean plays. They even subleased the theater to a burlesque troupe in 1928. However, due to financial issues exasperated by the Great Depression, which began October 1929, the theater closed in 1932. And that is where we are going to end today's story. Thank you for joining me as we explored this piece of American history and Kansas City history. In part three, we will explore the theater during its final iteration as the Folly Theater. This will conclude this topic in this series. For sources. Wow, y'all. I think this is the largest number of sources I've used yet. I have nearly 50 footnotes in all of this writing. Um, sources for today include findagrave.com, cinematreasures.org, kansascity.org, broadwayscene.com, the Schubert Foundation website and Schubert Archive, the Britannica Encyclopedia, and a small handful of other websites. 
For written sources, I have Vaudeville, Old and New, an Encyclopedia of Variety Performances in America by Frank Colon, Florence Hackman, and Donald McNilly. And although I did not use it specifically here, I am still reading Enchanted Years of the Stage, which I think I did use specifically in another episode during the series. On the website, whenever this page gets created, um, I will have a link for the Schubert Archive because phenomenal. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You can also give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or at coffee.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as a dollar a month. Once you sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show, you'll be charged that day and then on the first of every following month. If you become a patron, you get three things. One, an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. A shout out on every show and social media post. So thank you, Bjorn and Joan, for your continued support. You also get access to exclusive bonus content featuring other local historians, archivists, museum experts. Everyone who donates will simply receive a shout-out on the next available episode, but you will not get access to this bonus content or anything from the merchandise store. Additionally, if you simply give a donation on coffee, 1% of all donations automatically go to help fight climate change. I just spoke with Andrew Gustafson from the Johnson County Museum about their current temporary exhibit, Away From Home, American Indian Boarding School Stories. Next weekend, I will be speaking with Dr. Felicia Hardison-Landre, author of Enchanted Years of the Stage, Kansas City at the Crossroads of American Theaters, 1870 to 1930. Both of these conversations are only going to be available to my patron supporters but you can find Dr. Landre's book at your local library. Uh, if you have enjoyed this series thus far, I think you will enjoy her book. The exhibit is only on display until March 18th, so please go see it now. It is utterly amazing and provides nuance to a dark segment of American history um, by allowing Native voices to speak to their own experiences at these boarding schools. If you live in or near the Kansas City metro area, please go visit ASAP. The museum is also offering several uh, events with guest speakers in the next few weeks. So please check out their social media pages um, if you want to go check out those events. If you cannot support me monetarily, which is totally cool, I get it. You can still support me by following and subscribing to my Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, and Twitter pages. I also have a YouTube channel. And make sure to rate and review me on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. My website is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. Uh, if you visit my website, it is still under construction. I know, I apologize. Hopefully this year I will add more content. Um, but go there if you want to sign up for my newsletter. You'll get an email once a month that says, Hey, here's what's new, here's what's going on, here's what you can look forward to. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can always email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of my social media networks. If you want to check out where merchandise is available, go to Zazzle, Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore kc underscore store.
Thank you goes to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. To local libraries, which enable me to gather all my research. And to you, loyal listeners. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Seem to get you off my mind. Thought I lost my nerve.